Let's bow now as we come into our study of God's Word and we prepare for what God has for us in this part of the worship service. So our Father, we do continue to bow before you. You are our shepherd. You provide all of our needs. Would you please, in the moments that are ahead, feed our souls. We need to hear from you. You are the great shepherd. We ask that your spirit will be our teacher in these moments. We thank you in advance for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we started a brand new study in uh, the New Testament Scripture, studying through the book of Romans, and we covered the first seven verses. Romans is an incredibly powerful, powerful book. In church history, it has made major impact into the lives of not just we common everyday people, but even the big, well-known Christians. One of the great theologians of the early church, St. Augustine, it was him, a brilliant theologian. He actually came to Christ by reading some verses in chapter 13 of this book. Sometime later, the great reformer, Martin Luther, he came to a much clearer understanding of justification by faith through simply the study of this book, particularly the key verse of the book, chapter 1, verse 17, which we will cover today in our sermon time. A little, a little later after that, John Wesley, the great, great Wesleyan revival in the 18th century, that took place because Wesley wrote, read the introduction that Martin Luther wrote in his commentary on Romans, and he was deeply touched, deeply inspired. And so this book has not just rocked common people's worlds, but very high-level, visible Christian leaders through the course of 2,000 years. Some of you know the name uh, John Bunyan, uh, the, the fellow that was in jail for a while, and while in jail, he read the book of Romans, and that was his inspiration for his great work, well-known work, Pilgrim's Progress. This book's impacted a whole lot of people down for the 2,000 years, but I would say, perhaps even more impressively, it has impacted the common, lesser-known Christians like you and me, not just the big people that are well-known. Uh, so this book's touched a whole lot of us. We're, we're featuring this book and calling it uh, the theme of the book, The Gospel of Jesus Christ in All of Its Glory. And the illustration that I used last week was like looking at a beautiful diamond. As you look at it under light and magnification, you look at it from one angle, check another angle, another angle, another. You keep looking at the gospel from all these various angles and you see unique and beautiful pictures of what God has done for us. That's the book of Romans. And so in our study of the book of Romans, we're actually entitling this series, The Gospel, Understand It and Live It. Many Christian people think it's just about making an initial decision for Jesus to trust him as Christ, to trust Christ as Savior. It is about that. But then it's also about living the gospel every single day. It's not just a one-time decision. It's living it out. And that's where Romans talks about our need, the provision of salvation, decision that you make, and then live it for the rest of your life, living out the gospel. That's where Romans goes. Today we're looking in Romans chapter 1, picking up the text where we left off last week at verse 8, and we're going through verse 17. So I will read it. Follow along as I read, please. <clears throat> the text says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God 
whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how consistently I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I, I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. With these verses, Paul concludes his introduction to the letter to the Roman Christians, Christians at Rome. This is probably his longest introduction. In fact, it is in any of his 13 epistles in the New Testament scriptures. Um, this passage also contains verse 17, which many Bible teachers, theologians, believe is the key verse of the book. We'll get there today. So in looking at this, I want to begin. Uh, the passage actually breaks into two little sections. Oh, the first section about the prayer that Paul prayed, and then Paul gives three motivating, driving passions that he has in life and ministry. Let's start with his prayer. He says in verses 8, 9, and 10, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. That's where Paul starts. He starts with a heart of thanksgiving and prayer. Great place to start in prayer. If you're just a gimme Christian, you know, go to God, pray for what you want. You need to take some time to count your blessings. Paul's counting his blessings. He certainly counts among those blessings these Christians at Rome. He's never met them. He didn't plant this church, but he's heard about them. Rome is the capital of the ancient world at that time. And so he is very interested to get to this strategic place where there's some Christians, to have a ministry there and to see the gospel going out from Rome. That's his real strategy. He'll get to some of that a little bit later in these verses. But Paul begins by saying, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is reported all over the world. All over the world? Yeah. Central place of the world at that time, Rome. The fact that there were Christians there, it's saying a whole lot. It really is. Paul goes, well, he says in verse 9, he says, God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how consistently I remember you. I keep thanking God for you. I keep thanking God for you. I'm so thankful that in the center of world power, there are Christian people who love Jesus and are committed to the mission. That's what Paul's saying. 
So he begins with thanksgiving. Not a bad place, really, to begin your prayer life. He continues on in verse 10 with another specific request. He says, in my prayers at all times, I pray that now, that now at last, uh, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Paul wants to visit. He'd never been there to Rome. Some Christians say, did he ever make it to Rome? Yeah. But it wasn't pretty. Paul's about, he, he, he's currently writing this letter from Corinth. He wants to go visit them in Rome, but on the way he's stopping by Jerusalem to drop off a large collection that the Christians have taken up for the persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. And Paul's writing the letter because he knows Jerusalem is not a fun place to be a Christian at that point. Christians were being persecuted. And frankly, Paul doesn't know if he's going to get out of there. So he writes them this letter, I'm planning to come to you, love to see you all, want to see you, want to have the joys of being together. I thank God that he's allowing me to come to you. This is great. But frankly, I don't know if I'll get there. Paul did get there. He was arrested in Jerusalem. He appealed to Caesar in Rome. And he got to go for his court hearing in Rome as a prisoner. He got there just a little differently than he expected. When I look at Paul's prayer here, I see a man who is thankful for other Christians that he hasn't even met. I see a man who says, and I pray now that at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I get to visit you. I'm excited about that. I'm really rejoicing in that. You know, I'm struck by the fact that you Google how many Christians there are in the world professing Christians, 2.4 billion. How many of them do you know? Well, not a whole lot of them, I'm sure. But the beautiful reality is, whether you can be with Christians that you know or not, you can pray for them, and that's what Paul's saying here. He says, never been there, never met you, but I feel that I know you. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. I can pray for you. Prayer is a beautiful thing. It is not restricted geographically. I was talking to a homeless man here in our community this week out here on the front porch of Calvary, and he thought we had to go inside the church to pray. I assured him right there in the porch we could pray, and we did. Beautiful thing about prayer, it's not locked into a geography where you are. Whether, whether he's in his tent and I'm in my home where I can pray for him. He was really touched by that fact, I think. That's a beautiful thing. It is. Prayer is great. Paul's prayed this little prayer. It's part of his introduction. And when he, when he has prayed it, he then moves on to three specific passions that he has that are driving him in his ministry. Starting in verse 11, he shares the first of those three passions, which is encouragement or mutual encouragement, if you would. He starts out the passage not actually mentioning encouragement, but he'll get there in the second verse. If we start in verse 11, it says, I long to see you so that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. I long to see you. Do you hear the passion in that? I long, I long to see you. This is one of the passions that drives him. He wants to meet these Roman Christians. Never been there. He's heard such good things about them. Wherever he has gone, they're serving Jesus. They're doing their thing. 
I long to see you so that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Do Paul have the ability to like lay hands on people and give them the spiritual gifts? I don't know. Maybe as an apostle, but I don't think you should read into this the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in four passages of the New Testament, 26, 27 gifts that are mentioned. I think this term spiritual gift is used more broadly. The context of this, as he'll go on in just a moment, he is saying, I just long to be there with you to have a ministry among you to pass along some gift of, he calls it spiritual gift, used in a broader sense to impart some spiritual benefit, if you would. Through his preaching, through his teaching, through his exhortations, his counseling, his prayer with them, his fellowship with them. He wants them to be built up in Christ. This is, what he, this is why he wants to go. He wants to get to know them and spend time with them. And he really gets clear on that now in the next verse, in verse 12, where he actually mentions the encouragement. He says in verse 12, that is, uh, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other. This is why I believe when he references spiritual gifts, he's not just talking about the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in Scripture. He's using it more broadly to build them up, to give them something of spiritual benefit. And he knows if he does that, it goes both ways. Would you notice he calls it mutual encouragement? You'll be encouraged. I'll be encouraged. That's what Paul is saying here. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Let's park on that for a moment and talk about how impacting this can be. Do you understand the ministry of mutual encouragement? This is a ministry that every single person in this room and that's in sound of my voice on YouTube can be a part of. You can be an encourager. We say, well, I understand, you know, Paul going to Rome, he could be an encourager. He's Paul. He, he could be a... Paul's saying, you guys will encourage me. Can you see that side of it? Perhaps this would help. Emily and I have been in ministry 40, almost 43 years now. It's a long time. I think from a human perspective, I could say to you that we would not be in ministry if it weren't for people who spoke words of encouragement to us. Oh, you don't need that. You're Dan. You know, you're stable. You're fu Everybody, including Paul, needs encouragement. Do you understand how powerful encouragement can be? You never know where it's hitting a person on any given day. You might be God's voice into their life that day. Oh, I don't really have much. Just showing up, your presence, saying thank you. What a tremendous encouragement that can be. Paul's saying, if I see you encouraged, I'm encouraged. I got a file drawer back there in my office. I keep notes from Emily, family members, people in the churches I've served for the years. I don't often go back and read them. Sometimes I do. But sometimes I just open the drawer and I look at them. And I smile because I know people care. 
You see, Dan can look stable up here. You have no idea what's going on in my life. I got to get up here on days when I don't feel so good. And I'm not saying physically that I'm ill. I'm saying something is really stressing me. Do you have an understanding of how encouraging it is to hear from a friend, thanks, that helped? It doesn't have to be a profound thing. Just to know that God called me, I'm serving in the midst of difficulty, people say thank you, something touched them, God used me. That's encouragement. Paul's saying, I can't wait to get to see you guys to impart some spiritual benefit. I want to preach. I want to teach. I want to do all these things. And your faith's going to encourage me. When I see you growing in Christ, I'm going to get really excited. I'm going to be pumped up. This is going to be incredible. Paul needed that to keep going. It's a passion for him. He knows he needs encouragement. It can be a couple of things. It can be a, hey, you got to keep going. You, you know, God's called you. You, you just got to keep going at this and be faithful. That's one side of encouragement. The other side is sometimes encouragement means you need a kick in the seat, the pants. Because we get off track. Get back on track. That's an encouragement. Do you understand how powerful the ministry of mutual encouragement can be in 2022 in the culture that we're living in? From coronavirus to the Ukraine and everything in between. These have been deep and dark days for a lot of people. Some people just need a friend to care. Just for a few minutes. To care. This is one of the things that Paul says drives him. This ministry of mutual encouragement. Oh, by the way. This is stuff's not my notes now. I'm just kind of like talking from my heart. Can I do that for a minute? During coronavirus, churches, we all shut down. You know, most of us. And now many of us have opened back up. Not all churches, but some. Calvary's a hybrid now. You know, we have online people. We have people in, in service. I get it. We're figuring out the hybrid piece. It's an important part of doing church today. And we have people now with us on YouTube today that are outside of the state that have made Calvary their home church. Welcome. We have people that used to fill these seats here that just cannot come, health restrictions, whatever, something's happened, they're caring for a loved one, any number of things. But it's possible there's some other out there that just need a kick in the seat of the pants. Mutual encouragement. If you've fallen into a habit now where you do everything else, but you just haven't come back to church, you need to come back to church. It's not just for you. Oh, well, I don't need it. Okay, you don't think you need to be here. But do you know what your presence does? You walk in the door, do you have any comprehension of how mutually encouraging that can be to people around you? who love you and haven't seen you for a while. So if you've got comfortable in your PJs with your favorite cup of java, set it down, get dressed, and get back here. Somebody said, did Pastor Dan really just say that? Yes, he did. 
And for those of you that for legitimate reasons cannot come, we are so glad Calvary can be a hybrid church. Praise God. Some of you are helping some of our shut-ins view service now, and they haven't been able to do it for years. Now the ministry's increased. That's mutual encouragement, too. Paul says one of the things that really fuels him and keeps his passion going is mutual encouragement. It really is an incredible thing. I am reminded of Christians in persecuted uh, countries that persecute Christians. Uh, a little while ago, I read an article in Christianity Today that was interviewing Christians who were persecuted in Nigeria. And they have accepted the persecution that comes from a different faith toward them as Christians. And they realize, and they talk about it in the article, how their job is to be persecuted as Christians. And the persecutor's job is to persecute them. We know our job. They know their job. Let's get on with it. It's okay. We're not taking it personal. In fact, to make it easier to identify them, on the side of their church vans, they put the word missionary. They advertise it. Paul is finding mutual encouragement here in the gospel. Encouraging each other about your persecuted brothers and sisters. It's estimated, a conservative estimate, 100,000 of our brothers and sisters will give their lives for Jesus this year, being persecuted. There's some great people here. People whose commitment are so deep to Jesus, they're willing to lay their lives down for him. We're going to get to meet him someday. We'll be mutually encouraged. But till then, you can do what Paul did, pray for them. Can't wait to see you. Paul says, uh, that is that you and I might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan to come to you many times. Paul says, I've wanted to come to Rome several different times, but I've always been prevented from doing so until now. In order that I might have a harvest among you. I just want to come there and have a ministry in your midst, have a harvest there, just as I had among the other Gentiles. Paul's teaching us a lot about what fuels him. Mutual encouragement is one of those things. Here's another one, starting in verse 14. The mission fuels him. He's very passionate about the mission that God's given him. Verse 14, I am obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the fool. That's why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I, I have this mission God's given me. I know what my calling is. I am juiced by it. I am excited. I am ready to go. This is one of his great passions. You get a feel for his passion in the word obligate. I, I, am, I am burdened in my soul. I am driven to do this. Both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks. What's he saying? Well, the Greeks were the basis of the Romans who conquered them and so on. So he's saying, you know, the, 
uh, if you're a Greek, uh, consider yourself a Roman, that's fine. And for those who aren't, I'm here for them as well. I'm here to present the gospel to them, to the, those who have an understanding of the wise and to the foolish. Uh, you see, if you were in Rome and you were a Roman, you just thought, hey, I'm Roman. <laughs> those other guys, the non-Romans out there, uh, actually the Greek word for the non-Greeks, the, the, the Greek word is barbarian. We Romans, you know, we got it right. And then there's the barbarians. Paul said, I don't care if you're a Roman. I don't care if you're a barbarian. I'm coming to you with a message. I got a message for you, a mission. And he's pumped. This is not one of those, and your mission, should you decide to accept it. This is not optional, Paul's saying. I am driven by this. Would you notice how he says, This is why I am so eager, there's the passion, to preach the gospel to you. Now, there's a curious statement. I thought the Christians at Rome already knew Jesus. Why does he want to go and preach them a message they already know? This is a hint of what's coming in the book. The book of Romans shares with us our need for the gospel and what God did to provide it and to bring us to faith in Christ. We call that the good news, the gospel. But then it goes on to talk about how we live the gospel every single day. Paul's saying it's not enough to just make the profession. you got to live it now. This is the book of Romans. Paul says, I can't wait to get there. I'm going to share that message with you, not only how to trust Christ, but how to live it. Understand the gospel, live it. That's our theme in this book. This is an incredible thing. You turn to your neighbor, your loved one in Christ, your household member, preach on the gospel, remind them how to live. Good news didn't just save you from your sin, it saved you from the lifestyle you would be living, you live a different lifestyle now. Paul gives a third passion, starting in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. I am not ashamed. He's, in fact, downright passionate about this gospel because he knows its power. He says, I'm not ashamed of God. Uh, of the gospel because it is the power of God. The Greek word is dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. It is explosive power. It blows people's lives up and changes them completely, making way for new rivers of blessing from God to flow. Just blow up the old life and start something new. Paul is so totally confident about this gospel and how it changes He has paid the price for this gospel. He has been persecuted. He has been beaten. He has been chased out of towns. He has been in prison. He has been hungry. He has been shipwrecked. And on and on it goes. He was passionate about this gospel. He knows its power. This is an incredible statement because Paul's writing Christians at Rome. Rome was really puffed up. We're Romans. We got our act together. No Roman ever appreciated a Jewish carpenter. They're barbarian. There's nothing. Rome thinks it has its act together, and Paul says, they think they, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. Are you kidding me? He's changing people's lives all the time. Not a Roman. <laughs> no good Roman would crucify or would uh, 
respect anybody that was crucified because crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals. Our Jesus was crucified. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of him one single bit. He's changing people's lives. Romans were all about whatever Rome would say, whatever Caesar would say. That's the important message. Paul says, got something much more important. What Jesus says is important. The message of the gospel, that's what's important. I'm not ashamed of this message. Not at all. I've told a story before. I, I love the story of a seminary prop. He used to tell us this story. He told us so many times, so I figure I can keep telling it too. Um, friend of his went out to dinner with a, a guy who was supposed to be a believer. I guess he was, but went out to dinner, and finally the waiter or waitress brought the food, and the seminary professor said to them, uh, can I lead us in prayer, thanking God for the food? And I was like, well, I, I guess, public restaurant, we're going to pray? <laughs> so the uh, seminary professor begins to pray, and he sees the guy sort of rubbing his eyebrows. Seminary professor stops his prayer. He stands up. He gets up on top of his chair. He gets on the table, and he proceeds to pray. Father God, I want to thank you for not just the food my friend and I are enjoying today, but for the food that all of these dear people. And the guy is like ready to crawl under the table. Afterwards, seminary professor's done. He gets down from the table, sits back down, tucks his napkin in, gets ready to eat his meal. Guy says to him, do you always pray like that when you're public? Seminary professor said, no, only when I have a friend that's ashamed of Jesus and kind of does the rub in the eyebrow thing. You know, I'm convinced that some people are ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because they think, well, you know, I don't want to, other people don't believe it and they'll think I'm silly if I believe. You understand how much Jesus loves you? You understand what he did for you? That's what this book is going to be about. You understand how he's changed your life, how he's blown up the old life and the dynamite of God's gospel in your life? Hey, we're not saying they got to believe. We do believe they need Jesus. They can believe what they want. But so can you. Do not be ashamed of this gospel. It changes. Look around you. Our lives have been changed by this gospel. So today, if you go out to lunch, stand on the table and pray. <laughs> no. Wow. Imagine the Nigerian Christians experiencing persecution. They put on the side of their church van, missionary. They're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus, even though they know it's like painting a target on themselves. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. The word means deliverance. And Paul says it's first to the Jews and then, then to the Gentiles. Now this statement's been a source of a lot of debate. Let me just touch it. It's not saying a Jew's better than anybody else. Nobody's better than anybody else. That's reality. God loves us all. But when Christ came, he brought the gospel of God to the Jewish people. And many of them rejected it and opened the door to Gentiles as well. 
the gospel came first to the Jews, but it also came to the Gentiles. Same gospel. I'll just leave it there, okay? Paul concludes this passage with the key verse of the book, verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. There's a lot of different righteousness in the world. Some people think they're righteous because they do this. Some people think they're righteous because they do that. Some people that attend church think that they're righteous because they keep the Ten Commandments. See what this says? For in the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for us, a righteousness from God. This is a perfect heavenly righteousness. It's nothing like anything here on earth righteousness. This is a righteousness from heaven, from God himself, that's revealed to us. Human righteousness does not go far enough for a perfect God. That's part of the gospel. You can do good works all your life and you will still have to be punished for your sin. The good news that Jesus gives is about how to be forgiven your sin. So when the righteousness of God shows up in this world, it brings to us a plan of salvation. And so God, when we get into eternity, does not treat us like criminals, sinners, lawbreakers. He treats us like sons and daughters. That's what the righteousness of God does. And this book gets real clear on that, about living the gospel of Christ in our day-to-day lives and how God changes us. So Philippians 3, verse 9 says, not having a righteousness of my own, human righteousness, that comes from keeping the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. It is not human righteousness. What we experience in the gospel is God's righteousness. See, that? that's real critical in this book. That's why it's the key verse of the book. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us. God took all your sin and poured it on Jesus. He becomes sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There it is. Wow. What amazing good news. God gives you his righteousness through Jesus. That's good news. That's what this book's about. A little bit later in this book, Paul will say in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, we'll get there someday, I don't know, well, someday. For if by the transgression of one man, that is Adam, he's comparing Adam with Christ in Romans 5. For if by the transgression, by the sins of one man, death reigned through that one man, Adam, to all of us, how much more now will those who have received God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in our lives through one man, Jesus Christ. Adam, he served up sin to us. Jesus serves up righteousness. The righteousness of God. Paul closes verse 17 by quoting Old Testament. He says, the righteous will live by faith. Most Christians never pick up this as quotation of the Old Testament because they might not know their Old Testament, particularly this book. This is Habakkuk. 2 verse 4. Most Christians 
hardly know how to pronounce Habakkuk. Is it Habakkuk or Habakkuk or, you know, Habahua? You know, chapter 2, verse 4. God says, righteous people always live by faith. You get your righteousness. You get, you get this righteousness by faith, by trusting God. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough for it. In fact, it's such an important statement. Paul makes it the theme of this book, key verse of this book. And Paul will mention it again in, 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 in Galatians chapter 3. He'll quote it again, that the righteous shall live by faith. And the writer of Hebrews quoted, quoted it in chapter 10. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. Righteous people, God's righteousness, do that by faith, not by your actions. This is the book of Romans. Understand the gospel and live it every day. That's where we're going. So once again, if you are here and you're saying, well, I, I think I let's make sure that you've received the gospel. It's very possible you have some Christian influence in your background and some well-meaning person somewhere wanted to make sure that you knew Jesus, so they said, if you'd like to ask Jesus into your heart, what does that mean to ask Jesus into our heart? Hard to find that in the New Testament. Well, I'll ask Jesus to live in me. Are you dealing with the sin issue being forgiven? I think there are some people sitting in our churches that think, I asked Jesus into my heart but they've never dealt with a sin issue to let Jesus be the savior from their sin. They think they're a Christian and they're not. The bad news is you're a sinner. The good news is Jesus died for that sin. He took the punishment for that sin. And when you trust him, he forgives the sin and God gives you a brand new righteousness, the righteousness of God from heaven. Oof. That truth will be fleshed out in this book in future weeks. Would you bow your heads with me, please? It is time now, if you have not received Christ as Savior from sin, to offer your prayer to him in your words and say, God, I know I'm a sinner, and I got to deal with the sin. And I don't want to have to be punished for my sin, but I believe you sent your son to be punished for me. And I ask for your forgiveness, and he will forgive you now. Meet us in this moment of time, Father. We thank you, and we praise you that you love us. We are not ashamed of this gospel, for it does have the power to blow our old lives up and to let new rivers of joy and mercy and grace from you flow into our lives to change us and bring the righteousness of God the Father into our lives. Thank you. Amen.